welcome to Rising. We're back with another stellar show for you today, and I'm joined at the desk by Amisha Cross. Amisha, it's wonderful to see you. Always glad to be here. It's so exciting. I love what you've done to the place. <laughs> yes, yes, our new, uh, our new set design, our new music. Isn't that exciting? It, it is. I'm like, you know, there's so many changes happening in cable news and changes happening here, too. <laughs> I'm loving this background, though. Like, seriously, beautiful colors. Well, thank you for your endorsement. It compliments endorsement. me just perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Well, we'll get into the big news of the day. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer and also Senator Chuck Grassley say that they've been contacted by a whistleblower who claims that as Vice President, Joe Biden allegedly engaged in a bribery scheme with a foreign national. In a letter, Comer confirmed he has subpoenaed the FBI and demanded the Bureau produce a document that allegedly contains evidence of an exchange of money for policy decisions. Some Republicans are already floating impeachment over the allegations. Let's watch. It, it absolutely would. In fact, it doesn't have to be a, a high crime or misdemeanor because the Constitution specifies that impeachment lies for treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. Bribery is explicitly noted in the Constitution. And, and, and I got to say, the evidence, not only against Hunter Biden, but the evidence against Joe Biden being complicit and profiting from this corruption is growing and growing and growing. I'm glad he said it's, it's growing rather than like it's overwhelming or it's persuasive because obviously we haven't even <laughs> seen this piece of evidence. Um, I don't know what more to really say about it. Obviously, I, I, so I, I agree with Representative Comer, Senator Grassley, that we should have access to whatever um, law enforcement has if this document exists. Yes, they should turn it over. We, you know, we should learn what any and all whistleblowers may have told law enforcement about the Bidens. I think there are a lot of questions about whether the investigation so far have been handled correctly. We have heard from whistleblowers who say, you know, we're ready to talk. Former business associates of Hunter Biden saying we're ready to talk. Was the FBI interested? Are, are they ultimately trying to, um, or are they ultimately turning a blind eye to all the corruption allegations and they're going to, you know, slap him on the wrist, Hunter Biden, with like, uh, with, you know, drug crime or a gun, the, the gun charge that he's potentially facing and overlook potential corruption. Now, Again, we need to see the actual information to make a conclusion. Exactly. There has not been anything presented yet. So I, I love your framing here because I think on certain networks that I've seen, there have been people who talked about this in a way that made it seem like there was mm -hmm. something that we should really be digging into, looking into, because they had some type of smoking gun. Because we have seen time and time again the Republican Party, because of the multiple Trump impeachments, try to come after President Joe Biden. Him and Hunter are two separate people. Aside from being father and son, these are totally separate people. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that there are conversations about Burisma and how, you know, how that job was gotten, what some of the conversations that Hunter had with, uh, with leadership of various foreign countries happened to be, and his own private business handlings. Thus far, there has been no link between those conversations and President Joe Biden. So at the end of the day, as somebody who, and, and you know as well, Joe Biden has been in public life longer than both of us have been alive. This man, for the most part, has been extremely clean. Anytime you're in public life that long, most of us are like, our wheels start turning because mm -hmm. corruption does happen to be something that a lot of people get entangled in the longer they are in public office. But 
I would venture to say that if somebody has served as long as he has, and nothing major has ever come out about Joe Biden other than the flubs he's made himself when he gets in front of a mic sometimes. Well, and the multiple sexual confusing. misconduct accusations, although very, very none of which have been substantiated in any real way. It is very confusing to me, or, or not, we have an election year coming up, that this is something that they want to track and chase instead of trying to appeal to a base that is largely dwindling across this country. Well, wait a minute. I, I think uh, I... It should be, it's being investigated, it should be investigated. Hunter Biden uh, made some of his associates think that perhaps he had in, uh, uh, he had a direct line to President Joe Biden, the big guy in the messages. I agree with you that we haven't seen the evidence yet that Joe Biden is a, is a willing participant or, you know, the, the other piece of the puzzle has not come into focus yet. But I think it's perfectly all well and good to investigate it. No, I'm not against them investigating. My argument is that they're going to investigate it in the same way that the, that the Twitter files mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of ramblings that Republicans have thrown out about Joe Biden is going to turn into a big nothing burger, as it always does, and that this is more of the same of them basically saying that once Joe Biden won in 2020, that they were going to continue down this road of trying to impeach this man. We mm -hmm. knew that it was coming. We know that they're going to continue this conversation, and this is a waste of taxpayer dollars and time, in my opinion. Well, Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not, I mean, they haven't, they haven't actually, t I mean, they, the, the Democrats did impeach Trump twice. They haven't actually impeached Joe and Biden. And they actually did have evidence leading well, up to why know. he got impeached both times. Very clear evidence that was shown to the American people. Here we have allegations. We have a lot of sideways right. backdoor conversations. But what if we're not seeing we it because nothing. top law enforcement officials are partisans who support the Biden presidency and want to, you know, slow roll any actual investigation into corruption. If there was actually corruption to the extent that they are arguing that there is, or corruption in general, mm -hmm. I believe that we have a nation of laws and a system and process that would be able to and would fundamentally stand against that. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we have not seen this happen. We have not seen that there has been a, a, a method of our, our internal investigations to stop things mm -hmm. around, uh, around Joe Biden in terms of those types of investigations. We've heard it from the right, but there is no evidence that it's actually happening. I mean, the right doesn't trust, frankly. They don't trust the FBI and other organizations like the FBI to handle these things properly when, you know, what happens when the New York Post laptop story about Hunter Biden comes out? Uh, a bunch of former CIA and FBI pe people say, this looks like Russian disinformation to us. Joe Biden uses that line in his debate with Trump to delegitimize the entire story and any inquiry into Hunter Biden by saying, no, they've said it's a Ru Russian-planted disinformation. That all now turns out to be not true. It is, the laptop is genuine. You can make whatever conclusions you want, based on it. But uh, I mean, the perception among Republicans is that the deep state is entirely in the Biden's corner, so they can't be trusted to look at this matter fairly. If there wasn't such a close relationship between former President Trump and some of his allies with the Russian, with the Russian government, then those types of conversations wouldn't have been held. <laughs> what, what do you, close, I mean, a lot, but a lot of those allegations ended up, you know, kind of like collapsing under scrutiny, right? Uh, what ended up collapsing was the investigation into the laptop. Because, again, it was supposed to be the smoking gun that unraveled, that showed that Joe Biden had all of these illegitimate things going well, on and that, that this was supposed it... to take down his, his White House. It didn't. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, it didn't. But the question is, did it fail to do that because law enforcement didn't it, take it failed these to do accusations that because there was no seriously there. enough because they're partisans who are against, uh, against Trump and for Biden? Uh, it failed to do it because there was no there oh. there. You can't create evidence that doesn't exist. Well, I, okay. Unless you the fail to look department. at, well, okay. Anyway, 
so you think this is a political loser, that this doesn't, that this is not a, a useful inquiry, inquiry for Republicans go, to go down in terms of, you know, running a campaign against Biden? Absolutely. Now, and I would argue that in the two Trump impeachments, those were also political losers because the general mm -hmm. public, Republicans did not stop voting well, for or supporting Donald Trump, even though he got impeached twice. This isn't going to actually lead to an impeachment, and it's not going to move moderate or Democratic-leaning voters anyway. So uh, the people who are going to vote for and support Donald Trump or the Republican Party are going to support him anyway. The people who are going to support Joe Biden are going to support him anyway. We know historically that these do not change voter patterns. So at the end of the day, yes, I do think there's something to be said about investigating impropriety. I will always be for that. However, the idea that this is going to change an electoral cycle, I, I think is completely asinine. Sometimes the witch hunt against, uh, the perception that there's a witch hunt against Trump makes him at least more, well, raises his salience and makes him more of a martyr and, and, and it kind of makes the fervor among his fans um, higher pitched. I don't know if that dynamic is true for Biden. Do you think it is? Um, it hasn't been tested. I would argue that whenever it is foreseen that one party, regardless of who the party is, is attacking another, specifically to knock somebody off who um, those voters actually appreciate and want to see leverage, then at the end of the day, yes, you're, you're going to hear that from both sides. I don't think that that is a cons constituent argument just for Republicans. I think that if Joe Biden was to experience people who are, you know, going after an impeachment and that impeachment is something that raises the ire of media attention, then yeah, his people are going to dig in their heels because essentially that's what people do. Mm. They, unless there's something extremely egregious where lives are on the line, um, war monies and things like that's a different conversation. But this isn't that. So I think that his his base would definitely go go to war um, for for Joe Biden. We know that. There are people who are vouching for his policies. There are people who want to see the continuation. There are people who definitely believe that America is going in the wrong direction. And those individuals aren't here for continued impeachment conversations. They are caring about whether or not they can put food on the table and pay their rent. Those are their top priorities right now. Well, I agree we have not gotten—talk of impeachment is pretty premature, given we haven't actually even seen this document, this information. Um, so for, according to CNN, uh, Comer has subpoena— uh, uh, fire off a corresponding subpoena to the FBI calling for all FD, it's called an FD 1023 forms, including with any open, closed, or restricted access case files um, containing the search term Biden. So they're trying to get the information, and uh, I expect we'll be hearing more about this in the future. It's a little premature to make any judgment about it now, but... Uh, uh, Ted Cruz jumped the gun, per usual. <laughs> all right, we'll have more rising right after this. rankings for the past week are out, and it's not looking so great for Fox News. In the coveted 25 to 54-year-old demographic, Tucker Carlson's old 9 p.m. slot, now filled by Sean Hannity, averaged less than 100,000 viewers. For reference, Carlson's last show earned over 270,000 viewers. Yikes. Glenn Greenwald speculated about these numbers amidst new leaks of Tucker Carlson's communications while at the network. Glenn said, quote, there's obviously a decision by Fox to wage a massive war on Tucker Carlson's character, partnering with both The New York Times and Media Matters to do it, and it's extremely odd for many reasons, beginning with the fact that he hasn't uttered a negative word 
about them. Since Tucker's show was taken off the air, there has been what could reasonably be called a collapse in ratings, especially among young viewers on Fox's other shows. I don't know if this is a strategy to win back viewers or what, but it seems odd. Uh, and he went on to say, Glenn Greenwald went on to say that uh, he still likes Fox, likes appearing there, that it, it, he uh, thinks it does good work shattering the neoliberal consensus and uh, so on. So it, it does seem to me that uh, Tucker, more so than perhaps other personalities at the network, did have a younger audience. And maybe those people have departed with him. Numbers are down overall. Uh, Although they were still they were still pretty good, better than competitors for for the for the other programs. My guess is over time the numbers will be steady and stable. Fox has a very loyal base of viewers, and I'm predicting that eventually they'll fill that time slot, and that person will do about as well. That's what happened when they replaced Glenn Beck with the Five. That's what happened after Megyn Kelly's exit. Tucker himself was sort of a replacement for Bill O'Reilly, although they changed the times around a little bit. Um, anyway, the, while there, it's been tumultuous to, to part ways with a lot of these hosts in the past, ultimately, Fox's viewers love Fox, and they tune in. Now, it could be the case, however, that among those viewers, Tucker had a slightly more eclectic audience. Um, he actually had a lot of Democrats watching him for, uh, for a, a look into um, the intellectual trajectory of the Republican Party. So I, I'm not saying it's going to have no effect at all, but um, I think people are probably overhyping like the demise of Fox or something. So I don't think that Fox has the demise, um, to your point, that prognosticators are saying it does. Uh, Fox has made many shifts in terms of big name, name stay individuals who helped to, in many ways, build the network. And to your point, Tucker actually took somebody else's spot. Um, that's kind of how news works. So I, I, I don't fully understand why people are acting the way that they are acting. Like, nobody's crying for Tucker's bag. Tucker's not crying for his own bag. He's going to be rich multiple times over. Mm -hmm. However, um, coming off of the Dominion voting issue uh, and, and, the, and the suit that they ended up having to pay out, coming off of a lot of the negative commentary and the inflammatory things that Tucker Carlson basically built his brand on on that network, um, it, it's interesting to see now who potentially could fill that slot, because, quite frankly, he amassed an audience because of the wild things he was saying. It, he was that type of personality. With that being said, those people have largely found a new home, at least for now. They're going towards um, Newsmax. They're they're looking at other, you know, alternative, uh, stronger right-leaning, or they consider stronger right-leaning networks. But the most interesting thing about that overview to me was like the conversation about younger younger viewers. Younger viewers aren't watching cable news generally, right. no matter who's on right. it. Seventy-one percent of younger people, and they quantify that as ages twenty-one to forty, are getting their news from we're, social we're media. We're young people. We're we young, people. young people. I was like, they made us all feel good. We may have bad knees, but we're all young people. Um, that 21 to 40 demographic is getting their news on social media anyway, from various social sites. Mm -hmm. Much to my chagrin, TikTok is where a lot of people are getting theirs from. It's not Fox News. It's not MSN. It's darn sure not CNN. It's not a lot of things. Well, for the most part, I agree with you. But I mean, sometimes it's, it's clips of those shows do well. Like on YouTube, um, it, like this is hard to quantify, but like I'll see, you know, segments from, from Fox and CNN 
that were blocks on the television show. And then on YouTube, they're, they're getting like hundreds of thousands or even millions of views um, from what I presume is a much younger audience because YouTube is a younger audience. So it's not, so you're right, the, the people who are literally turning on their television and like watching their screens is Which is what Nielsen is actually number, recording. Which is what they're recording, yeah. The other but, piece, the, but the reach is bigger because the audience is bigger in the other ways it gets consumed. Well, if you say a bombastic thing on either the left or the right, of course it's going to be, mm -hmm. get picked up by social and people are going to watch it multiple times, even if they've never sat down and watched your show at all. And Tucker was very known for saying bombastic things, pushing white replacement theory, uh, making negative and extremely derogatory comp comments about immigrants. There was a lot of there there that was extremely problematic. And when you make those problematic statements, of course people are going to watch it, not necessarily in his primetime slot on Fox, but it would get traction across social media. So for counting that, Absolutely. But normally speaking, no. Fox has the viewers they were going to have to begin with. And those who are wedded to Tucker Carlson in the same way those who are wedded to Rachel Maddow, though she didn't get fired, Rachel Maddow is now only doing one show a week on MSN, one night a week. The same people who are watching that time slot regularly aren't watching it anymore because they're not trying to watch her Philly in person. They mm -hmm. were trying to watch her. So I, I think that every network goes through this to a certain extent. The more interesting part for me was the argument that uh, the New York Times and Media Matters were essentially in collusion with Fox around basically being negative towards uh, Tucker Carlson and his exit, when the New York Times and Media Matters have never been a fan of Tucker to begin with. This is them doing what they normally do. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that they're digging in a little bit more because every few days we get another leak of a text or another leak of an email that might have been questionable. And for me, to Media Matters, like this is basically red meat to the base of digging into things that they consider impropriety in media. Mm -hmm. They've been doing this for a while. That's yeah, their job. We, uh, we talked about these some of these leaks yesterday. Um, I, the, the first one Media Matters published was really weird looking, the video, and I, some people questioned, I think totally reasonably, whether it had been manipulated because it looked, it, it looked weird. Um, but then I was thinking about it more and I'm like, well, if they're going to, you know, leak, if they're going to manipulate a video to make him look like he's saying something embarrassing, why wouldn't they make it really embarrassing instead of just kind of like, eh, this is the odd banter we, that we agree there. I thought it was going to be, if, if they're going to create something out of nowhere, we're going to AI this yeah. thing through. I'm going to make it a lot more embarrassing than what was there. I thought that that video was unequivocally just not a good one overall. It didn't have the hit right. that I think Media Matters expected it to yeah, have. I don't know what they so, think is so salacious yeah, about this. The this is banner before, you know, you're trying to get your guests to to be excited. You know, you're saying, you say things. It's it's like, I, I didn't get it. I didn't yeah, get they would have done, they so done a better job of just like splicing together clips of his actual news shows um, because those have a lot more inflammatory I mean, that's, language. That's their full-time jobs at Media Matters and other places, the Tucker watchdogs, right? The people are like, oh, I can't believe what he said. Oh, yeah, there was again. a lot more bombastic things said actually on screen while the cameras were rolling mm -hmm. than it seemed to be behind the scenes when they were trying to release this gotcha moment. I was like, okay, um, and what else? Am I missing something in this video? Because I didn't see it. Right. Uh, the more interesting accusation is, is, you know, is someone at his former place of employment cooperating in these leaks and trying to damage him? Is it someone on his team? You know, all of that kind of stuff. No, I, I absolutely think that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There, anytime, because this thing is like a busted faucet. It's not just a leak. Like, they just sledgehammered that thing. At that point, you have to know that I don't know who he crossed in the wrong way over his time there, but somebody is very vigilant in trying to get as much out there as possible. And I think what they're doing is basically breadcrumbing, and there is going to be something much mm. bigger on the line, but they're trying to do it in very small doses, at least for now. Well, we will be paying attention for when bigger stuff comes out. More rising right after this.
Well, this just in, former Proud Boys chairman Henry Enrique Tarrio and three other members of the group The Proud Boys were found guilty Thursday of seditious conspiracy in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, according to The Washington Post. This comes after uh, nearly 15 weeks of trial, where prosecutors allege that the Proud Boys in question saw themselves as Donald Trump's army, according to the report. So uh, this is a you know high-profile um, convictions of leaders of the Proud Boys organization, which is the right-wing um, group that has has a history of clashing with Antifa in the streets of Portland and other places, and then, you know, was very active on the day of—on on January 6th. Um, they were also charged, some of them, and uh, of, like, um, taking police gear, using it to smash windows, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that's totally fair to go after them for all of that. I'm a little—I'm not sold on this whole seditious conspiracy aspect of it. So th their defense is that they said— this is Donald Trump's fault. He said these things, and then, and because he, you know, he he stoked the fires of the crowd, and then there was this unplanned riot. People went in. Um, that also comports with, like, that's my view of what happened as well. And isn't all, that also kind of the mainstream media's view that this was Donald Trump's fault? So, so charging them in this way makes it sound like. Like, the government is almost contradicting that narrative. They're saying, no, this was planned by these individuals. Um, and, you know, they're using—I uh, don't know. This, this worries me from, like, a free assembly and free expression standpoint. Again, to you can charge them for smashing stuff. Absolutely agree with that. But to say that they had this organized plan to, like, overthrow or prevent the transfer of power, that kind of thing, is, A, giving them a lot of credibility, and I think then ends up actually denying the culpability of Donald Trump, which, in, other in, in another sense, it was, the, like, all the, the January 6th commission and all that testimony. That's all about the responsibility Trump bears, not— these, you know, random, crazy, far-right activist people. Well, I think two things can be true at the same time, um, especially in this case. You have people who were organized. They were obviously a small militia of crazies who were very intent on carrying out this idea of destruction in order to take back America or reverse the signs of, of an election that they didn't agree with. Those things are true. I also think that they fell on what I consider, like, somewhat Nuremberg-style theory that because they assumed that they were told to do certain things, like, not directed— Trump didn't call on Tario and his crew to do something specifically. Right. But I think that because of the messaging that he had done across social media and various other channels about the election being stolen, about people needing to take up arms, a lot of the rhetoric that he gave emboldened these individuals who were already known for doing some pretty crazy things. And they essentially—their argument fell on, well, he told me to do it, and we were following orders. That didn't hold up. Seditious conspiracy is extremely hard to prove, so I, I did find it interesting that they got charged on that and that it actually went through. But in addition to that, um, I, I think it, it was deeper than what was publicly known. These people planned, they executed, they organized. This was not some ragtag team of folks that came together the night before and said, you know what, we're going to take the Capitol. That's not was. what happened. No, they were planning this happened. for months. Um, they were planning a protest, they, which you're allowed to do. You are allowed to protest. 99 percent or more of the people there were exercising their First Amendment rights. This is a rights. group that was known for anti-Semitism, anti-blackness, well, yeah, but now um, anti-immigrants. That's this, not a crime, none of that. None of that is. Bad, but yeah, creating bad. violence and creating environment 
environments where violence can mm -hmm. occur and stoking fear at the same time, that is. And this was a group that was absolutely fine with leaning in on domestic terrorism. And they ended up, I think, falling on their own sword. This was, I think that this type of ruling sends shockwaves to other groups who are also alt-right, who are also people who are anti-democratic in nature, who are also people who are absolutely fine taking up arms against America when they feel as though their, their, their values and what they represent is leaving them steadily. Um, it's going to make people, I think, think twice, because this group assumed that they would get off. You could not tell Tario that him essentially blaming his actions on President Trump well, I, wasn't going to relieve him of that they charge. They think twice about smashing windows, and that goes for left-wing protesters and everyone else, too. But I don't think this they should— This was beyond smashing windows. You and I did not see the same January 6th video. Well— This wasn't just about yeah, smashing and, windows. And fine, and, and feuding with police officers and, and trespassing. They shouldn't do any of that. They should be prosecuted like anyone else for all that stuff. But, um, oh, and the other interesting wrinkle is that in the past, Tario Enriquez, the Proud Boys leader, was, in fact, a government informant 10 years ago in a bunch of other cases. He, he helped the government um, uh, prosecute people for drug crimes and some other stuff. So the question a lot of people have had, and it, like this is true of many militia groups. Informants and going rogue isn't necessarily new. Well, there, there, there is a history of, uh, of people in these groups cooperating with law and then, enforcement. And then turning on America. Well, uh, cooperating with, I mean, being goaded by law enforcement agencies, agents to take actions that are criminal in order to arrest a wider swath of people. That very much happened in the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping thing. The, the, the organizer, the militia guy who's organizing that plot, was being paid by the FBI to do so because they're going to then arrest everyone involved in it rather than do they, that's how they build a case. I mean, this entrapment of Muslim people, this has happened a lot. So, so this is going to make people wonder, um, uh, you, you know, how to, to the extent that was, and I, I, people have made this argument, I haven't seen any evidence of it, but how, you know, were there uh, law enforcement people embedded in the kinds of activity going on on January 6th and whether, you know, were, were they, was, was actually um, agents of our own government, you know, organizing that kind of behavior in order to eventually arrest those people as they've done in this other context. We know that there were law enforcement officials engaged in cheering this group on. Many mm -hmm. of them stood out there and did it. We know that there were right. law enforcement I mean, there groups. were cops there. There were law enforcement groups <laughs> there were cops involved from all over in the country. assisting many of those who were, you know, January 6th and uh, Donald Trump single pants into getting into areas that are typically closed off. We know mm -hmm. that that happened. Um, was it coordinated in the, to the extent of somebody was an informant? That has yet to be revealed. I, I think that that's more, more in line with conspiracy theory at this point than anything else. What we do know is that these individuals are now being held accountable for the exact crimes that they committed. And quite frankly, I think that that is proof positive that democracy works, that our justice system works. And at the end of the day, if you react in this way, if you try to destroy our democracy in this way, there are repercussions for that. Yeah, I, I, I was there covering it. What I saw, what it looked like to me was a protest that spontaneously became a riot. The protest part of it, I think, was very or was organized. Um, the the part where they break down the doors and the windows and they go in and they start defacing the Capitol, that part did not seem to me to be coordinated or organized or planned. Um, you know, that, I mean, the government is trying to prove that it was. I don't really. I, I don't. I'm not persuaded that it was. That doesn't make it less bad. It's still bad. And I, I think it's perfectly fine, as I've said a million times, to, you know, to, to charge reasonably trespassing, 
fighting with the law enforcement agents that were on uh, that were that were there. All of that is absolutely something that should be prosecuted. You don't have the right to do that. Um, you have the right to protest. You didn't. They didn't have the right to go in the Capitol. That is fine by me. But um, I don't know. Seditious conspiracy. I, I'd worry they'll chill people's. Uh, I mean, like you're right. In the future, activists might not want to do um, protests at all. And I would just say the same thing about about left wing people. Or no, Black I don't Lives think Matter it's about activists, activists not wanting or... to protest. I think it's about quelling people who are literally scaling the walls of the Capitol, yeah. being fine with taking the Confederate flag and replacing, using the Confederate flag to replace the American flag, using said flag as spears on officers, snatching things from them, yeah. and basically being absolutely fine, creating all levels of chaos, mayhem, up to and including potential murders of sitting elected officials. Yeah. No, that's what this was about. Like, it's one thing to, and I, I don't agree with, with vandalism of, of, of any means either, but that's not what happened here. And we have to be very real about what did actually happen here and why this was amplified in the but way they were that it never was. going to, if, it's a, if it was a plot to stop the transfer of power over the, like that was, it was never going to succeed. <laughs> it, no, it but people not... could have died. No, I, I'm not well, saying yeah, that but the plan it's... and the plot wasn't ignorant in, yeah. its, in its mission nor in its, uh, in its actual yeah. you know, application. However, just because it didn't work doesn't mean that they don't deserve to have a certain level of repercussion. Mm -hmm. The argument well, isn't they, that it worked. I, well, Clearly it didn't work. It, was, it didn't stand a chance but, of working. All right. Well, we had a debate on that. You can decide for yourselves what you think. More rising right after this. Critics are accusing White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre of rewriting history when it comes to President Biden's stance on pandemic school closures. Here she is at the podium yesterday. Look, as you just said, kids have lost so much in the pandemic. This is why when the president walked in, he made that he made a priority uh, to open schools. Uh, one of the things that was important to do to make sure that the, our kids who have lost so much were able to go back in person school if they choose, have the resources that they needed uh, that to, to really succeed and move forward uh, in their education. And we saw that unfortunately, the pandemic had a, uh, a unfortunate effect on our young on our young people, on our kids. Now, back on his very first day in office, Biden did issue an executive order directing his administration to collect national data on school closures and provide guidance on reopening. However, Democrats' messaging on the issue has been far from clear. Check out this DNC ad from back in the 2020 campaign cycle. Most new cases in a single day. Four million cases. Desperate to reopen schools because he thinks it will save his re-election. We have to open the schools. Critical shortage of PPE. Threatening their funding. When they don't open their schools, we're not going to fund them. Ignoring how the virus spreads. Risking teachers and parents' lives. Going against the advice of experts. It's had very little impact on young people. Do you trust him to do what's best for our children? Because this is not a test. Trump is failing. I aced it. I aced the test. I think that ad is a useful reminder. That's Democrats, the Democratic leadership, telling the country that they're going to be the party of keeping schools closed longer than Republicans want them closed. So I think it's totally fair to remind people that Biden, um, top teachers unions, leaders like Randy Weingarten, who was scrutinized a question on Capitol Hill last week, uh, called Trump's reopening plan callous and cruel, um, fought to keep public schools closed longer than, longer than schools that were not beholden to teachers unions, to private schools, and also shut down longer than any other aspect of our society. 
I think that we have to take into consideration the time frame. Um, we know that that ad came out in 2020. The research, the evidence, the data that we are being presented by leading scientists, by doctors at that time, were, was very different than it was a few months or a year after that. To that sense, we had people who were largely extremely afraid of what COVID-19 could present, where it could present. And in, in the teachers and instructional process, it is, we know that we have a lot of teachers that are older. We have a lot of teachers who have um, pre-existing conditions that would make uh, contracting COVID a much more serious issue. And it wasn't just teachers. It was other administrative professionals. It was support staff. It was bus drivers. It was making sure that a lot of young kids, specifically those in urban school districts, are being raised by their grandparents. If a kid is to get COVID-19, maybe those children weren't as affected, but bringing it home to your grandparent that could die was a much more serious consequence. And to be honest, in 2020, we didn't know, we didn't have specific evidence that was conclusive that showed that children would not be more, more devastated. We know that in America, the obesity, we know that the obesity on. rates and the diabetes rates amongst young people are on the rise and have been for quite some time. Yes, if you're a young and healthy child who doesn't have any of these issues, you're not overweight, you're not obese, you're not battling diabetes, you don't have asthma or other respiratory issues, you might be fine. But a large percentage of the American school, public school students do, particularly those who are in um, food deserts and other things. So we have to be very real and vigilant. But, and it's better to protect your children first than to be sorry later when either you're burying them or those parents. But Amisha, I don't, that's not what I'm hearing from the Democrats now. I'm hearing, I'm not hearing what you just said, which is like, well, yeah, sorry, we couldn't open schools. It was too dangerous. What I'm hearing from them now is, oh yeah, we were absolutely trying to open schools all the way along, which is not true. Well, it, it is, but I think that they're responding to this incorrectly because the the answer for Democrats was always a plan to reopen schools, but there was mitigation efforts to do it, making sure that the air quality standards in the schools met a certain point, I mean, making sure that they were to able to. And, and some schools took it on, but that money went to the states. It didn't go directly to school districts. And some states dispersed it in a way that those provisions were met, and some did not. So we have to be real about how those things were checked, the line items, who got what money, and how it was spent. Because quite frankly, there were reg regulatory standards that were set. Once you give that money to the states, the states then decide which districts are going to be funded, how that money is going to be spent, and those leveraging points got miswired multiple times I mean, over. This doesn't give me a lot of faith in government-run schools well, and government-run school I districts. Mean, the, the, they got the, the, billions of dollars. They didn't figure it out. They stayed shut down longer I mean, that than happens in else. Republican administrations as well. Like, you, yeah. it, your best intended policies at the federal level, once you give money to states, depending on, depending on who's in leadership, sometimes things go well, sometimes things don't. Um, the, the bureaucracy of it all can be problematic. But at the end of the day, we had a global pandemic, people were suffering, many people did die, mm -hmm. Lots, uh, a lot of strategy went out the window, and things were changing on the fly very quickly. And we have to be cognizant of that and be honest in the conversations we have around it. Right. I just don't think there's been enough of a reckoning with the fact that schools were, schools were more shut down than other things. Uh, there, were, there were phases of the pandemic where restaurants were open, people had gone back to work, uh, some people had to go back to businesses, um, the precautions were being taken, people were still wearing masks. I mean, you could, you'd go to, in D.C., you would go to a restaurant, you would wear a mask until you got to the table, and then you would take it off, which, which never made completely insane. But that was happening. Uh, every, but things were generally open. We also had open. DC restaurant curfews, basically, as the if curfews, only came the curfews, yeah, the forty percent <laughs> occupancy, all that nonsense. But schools, public schools, again, not all schools. I and know not private all schools. schools. They again, were all, it depended on the district right. and where you were. The federal government cannot shut down all public schools. States made those decisions. Right. Districts made those decisions. There were certain public schools that 
remained open or at least partially open. Did you see the teachers throughout. unions dropped body bags in front of, uh, I think, Mariel Bowser's house or her office or something to intimidate uh, local officials into keeping schools closed longer? So. I'm, I'm not saying that their tactics were, were the best, because no. I do think that some people went a little bit too far. But again, as somebody who's worked in schools, who's been in administration and has taught, I think that at least in the early stages of those mitigation efforts, you did what you had to do to protect students. Mm -hmm. I will argue, uh, to your point, that it went on for too long. I think that there had to be a certain point where kids needed to get back in school. We know that the brain drain, the learning loss happens even during the summer months. The three months students the are out of school scores, yeah. every year. They lose, uh, they, they lose reading, writing, and math ability. Of course, being out of a school environment for much longer than three months, there were going to be some repercussions. What about the social costs? I mean, now uh, national health officials, uh, Vivek Murthy, has started talking about the loneliness crisis, the loneliness epidemic. I mean, how isolating and lonely was it for kids? to lose their entire social peer network, their extra, because school for young people, it's honestly, it's much more than just the, the literal learning, math, reading, et cetera. It's, it's, their, it's their friends, it's their, their activities, their clubs, their sports. Um, for a lot of young people, that, like that's their lives. And to just have that shut down for, for a long period of time was clearly so unhealthy. I mean, kids are more addicted to their phones than ever. That, I mean, that's the only place they could do social interaction with other people their age in some places for a year and a half. No, I agree with you as an advocate and a spokesperson and for NAMI, National Advocacy Organization for those who are suffering from mental health and mental illness, um, the, the numbers are clear. I, irrespective to learning loss, which is a mm -hmm. huge issue in, in public schools in general um, post-pandemic, the bigger issue, I think, for students is going to be uh, social-emotional. It is going to be that separation. It is going to be not having those groups or those, those feelings of belonging, um, hanging out with their friends, being part of those activities. Because it wasn't just in schools. Um, youth centers were shut down as well. They couldn't do anything in their community and they couldn't do anything at school. But in addition to that, I think it also ran in juxtaposition with the outgrowth of social media, the emergence of TikTok. All of these things during that time frame allowed for people to distance themselves from other people, you know, this person to person contact. But it actually grew in terms of their social media influence, whether that was good or bad thing. We could talk right. about it some other time. Right. But I, I do think that we lean too much in on sometimes just looking at this through the view of what happened with learning loss instead of the social emotional side of things. We saw depression, anxiety rates level, um, reach levels we haven't seen historically for very young age groups. We saw suicide rates, particularly for black boys, almost leap double what they have been. It makes a difference to have that type of outlet. And I don't think that, you know, that was necessarily quantified as well as it should have been. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we're only beginning to understand the consequences of that for young people in terms of their emotional health. Um, it's very scary stuff. More rising right after this. No charges yet for the man who killed a black homeless person by holding him in a chokehold on the New York City subway on Monday. According to the New York Times, 30-year-old Jordan Neely began harassing other passengers on the F train in a, quote, hostile and erratic manner about how hungry he was when another passenger, a white 24-year-old Marine veteran, restrained him in a chokehold. Witnesses say two other passengers assisted and held down Neely's arms. Neely struggled in the chokehold for 15 minutes before eventually going still. Paramedics' efforts to revive him were unsuccessful. A medical examiner said Neely died by compression of the neck or chokehold and has ruled his death a homicide. The Marine veteran was questioned by police and released that day. CBS reports, 
Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, Jordan Neely was murdered. But because Jordan was homeless and crying for food in a time when the city is raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself, while many in the power demonize the poor, the murderer gets protected with passive headlines and no charges. It's disgusting. ABC News reports that, according to police sources, Neely had a documented mental health history and had been arrested more than 40 times prior for assault, disorderly conduct, and fear evasion. And I'm seeing uh, there have been some protests now uh, regarding this death. Uh, we don't know if charges are forthcoming. The authorities let um, the, uh, the Marine who did the chokehold um, go after talking to him about the situation. Um, I don't know. What do you think about this? I've seen the video multiple times. I think it's disgusting. Um, mm -hmm. You could tell, as somebody who regularly takes public transit, um, you could tell from the moment he entered the train that something kind of was a little off. Um, the man was not accosting anybody. He was literally shouting about being hungry. Mm -hmm. I take the train to D.C. I took the train here um, almost daily. And you will come across individuals, sometimes more than one in a train car, who respond in the exact same way Jordan Neely did. I think that the onerous is on those around them to understand what mental health and mental health crises looks like, but also not to become hypervigilant and abusive towards somebody who is having an attack, somebody who is reacting to the environment around them, somebody whose mental faculties are not all there. This person needed help, needed assistance, not to be held down, choked, and basically killed in the manner that he was. Like, that is really heart-wrenching heart in many ways, because we know—we just talked about it in a previous segment—we know that mental health crises across this country continue to rise. We don't have enough mental health care. We don't have provision to provide enough funding for the mental health care we currently have. And if you are homeless, your access to it is, quite frankly, very limited. Heck, people who have homes um, sometimes have a very hard time finding the type of care that they need when they have mental health issues. So this is just—it's it, it, another nail in the coffin for an American system that was already broken mm -hmm. and watching it live, which is a really hard thing. Sure. And, look, I think it's— very tragic that he was killed. Um, you don't—I I agree that you don't get to respond to someone you know, engaging in hostile and erratic behavior by killing them. Um, I, I think we need different police practices on—like, what were the police doing? Do they not engage because they've been so stigmatized for taking—trying to take care of these kinds of problems? Because I do think it is a problem—like, the, the underlying problem of crazy homeless people screaming at passengers, sometimes getting in their faces. I don't know that that's what he did. He had been, as they mentioned, arrested 40 other times for, for extreme behavior. Um, look, I've been in those situations before on the train. You, have, you see a crazy person starts yelling at people. It is scary. Sometimes, sometimes a knife gets produced. Some, like, it does escalate to violence periodically. So I, I understand the impulse to try to restrain and control that person. Um, that does doesn't mean it was obviously it was not justified or right to to kill him, but I, I don't I guess I, I don't accept that. Okay, like passengers on subways and trains just have to accept that there's going to be crazy people screaming at them sometimes. And nothing no, can be but done you about don't this. jump in and restrain this person and put them in a chokehold until they die. And I think right. that to, to that point, we also have to recognize that when police intervene, police aren't trained in, in mental health de-escalation. Most of them don't do a really good job of de-escalating people who. But neither are random train issues. passengers, right? Well, exactly. So somebody's going to have to de-escalate. Um, well, but well, somebody has this to get man involved. was asking for food. It's very different than the example you use of somebody mm -hmm. knife wielding or anything else. This man was sick, screaming about being hungry. 
When you're mm -hmm. screaming about being hungry in the richest nation on earth, and you are met with not responsive services, not teams that can assist you, you are met with a chokehold that takes you out within 15 minutes. Nobody tried to stop the guy mm -hmm. who was literally killing this man in front of them. There is an extent of lack, lack of empathy, lack of care about people who are mentally ill, but a strong lack of care concern for those who are homeless. We live in a culture where people would rather not see homeless people. They don't want to see the tenement camps. They don't want to see you on public transit. Um, there are cities, including, including my home city in Chicago, that are creating pathways to remove them from being able to, you know, enter or be around airports or any other public space, restrooms, things like that, because things that are open overnight, um, they, will, they will attempt to seek shelter because they are unhoused. In extremely cold places like yeah. Chicago, obviously, right. you don't I, want to be on the street. I, I totally, but I totally get we, that We impulse. need to answer the homelessness problem. We need to answer yeah. the hunger problem instead of demonizing individuals who are going through both up to and including killing them. Well, because cops started doing it first. When we talk about the arrest that this man had over 40 times, you know, in our jail system, over 70% of those who are jailed are there um, with mental health issues, are there because they had mental health episodes. So I, These aren't hardened criminals. I, right. I, I agree we should address these issues, but I don't think but like letting crazy people occupy public transportation and public spaces and and be belligerent and Robbie, scary and harmful go? to themselves is not a, it's not addressing it. Robbie, where do they go? If you they don't go to if, mental if health funding, facilities. where are the mental health facilities? Right, we should put <laughs> money right into now. Mental health they're not just going to pop up overnight. So where do individuals go who have been pushed out of every public space? Mm -hmm. They have no means of shelter. They have no means of feeding well, they themselves. Can't, they can't go on the subway. They've, they've got to find something. And I get what you're saying. And obviously, people are going to you know, be up in arms mm -hmm. about this. But you can only push people out so far. And at the end of the day, yes, it would be great. It would be a, a utopia if there was enough homeless shelters, if there were provisions where families could stay with their families in homeless shelters instead of being separated, if there were provisions of safety for them while they were there, because that's, an also, that's also an issue. If we did not have a Republican Party that is threatening to cut SNAP food stamp benefits and push people further into right, hunger, but, we would be in a different place. Our housing issues are not going to eradicate sure, but this themselves. person, it wasn't just, this person was complaining about hunger, but this person was having a mental health episode and needed, look, if it's a matter of more funding for more beds at mental health facilities, fine. My understanding is New York does have a lot of those. I think it's more a question of will to actually require that people who are in the kinds of situations that Jordan Neely was, they actually have to go to those facilities and they have to get treatment. It can't just be a like, do it if you feel like it, and if not, there's the subway. Like too many, I, I, I don't, I don't agree that we have to just say, well, nothing can be done. This is how the subway is. No, now. my this argument is isn't that nothing can be now. done. This my is argument how... is that what was done should not have been done, mm -hmm. and that those who seek to eradicate homeless uh, homeless people from any and all public spaces need mm -hmm. to first think about how they got there and ways we can mitigate homelessness and hunger to begin with. Because once we do that, we're not going to have these issues. Once we actually address and fully fund mental health resources and make it where individuals who right. don't have health insurance or don't have jobs have access to it, because quite frankly, right now, that is not how our system is set up. Mental health is extremely, mental health care is extremely expensive. A lot of people who have insurance cannot afford it or the provisions, three mental health visits, because in most, uh, in most insurance companies, you, are, you have a limit of how many times you can even visit a mental health professional before you pay out of pocket. That's for people who have health insurance. If you're homeless, if you're unemployed, you don't even have that. So we have to be very real about what these people are facing and address that before we start looking down on them. I think that we do a very good job of throwing people under the bus instead of offering any types of real support. Okay, true. This person also had been 
what was it, arrested 40, 40 times? That's a that's a staggering Police arresting people with mental health issues multiple times is not surprising. still out in public life after causing that many disruptions, disturbances. I think some of them were assaults. Um, like that, I that that's not a that's not a safe situation for the other people on the train, even if he wasn't doing anything violent in that moment. Again, police officers are not a uh, criminal justice system isn't equipped for mental health issues. Police officers are not equipped for mental right. health issues. And you see them are, arrest but, them early and often instead of them actually seeking care. But people, this is an example of people of non-police taking matters into their own hands because there's nothing else to be done about. No, it's because our incidents. art culture has also started uh, really supporting vigilante justice and vigilante justice up to and including. This person wasn't trying. He was no. Trying no to kill he, this he was. He was trying. This person was not in any threat of physical danger. Jump first, ask questions later, choke somebody out. This is the same type of reaction that we see in police brutality cases. That person definitely deputized himself in his head before jumping on this individual, who was a lot smaller body-wise, and literally choking them to death. So do you think there should be charges? Absolutely. Mm. I don't think murder so. is murder. I don't think so, but we will find out. We'll wait for more news of that and keep covering this story. More rising after this. LinkedIn co-founder and Democratic donor Reid Hoffman, former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, and actor Woody Allen are all on the list of elites who continued to associate with sex offender Jeffrey Epstein after his 2008 conviction, according to new reporting in the Wall Street Journal. Hoffman admitted to the journal that he visited Epstein's island once for business. He says their last contact was in 2015. In other Epstein news, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon will be deposed later this month in lawsuits accusing the bank of covering up Epstein's sex trafficking, a source told CNBC yesterday. So mega applause to The Wall Street Journal for the reporting they're doing on Epstein's associates and all that. This story begins, and we, I think we already knew that Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, former president of Harvard as well, I think we already knew that he had some uh, Epstein uh, connections. But this story begins that, uh, so I'm, I'm quoting from The Wall Street Journal, Lawrence Summers wanted $1 million to fund an online poetry, poetry project his wife was developing. The former Treasury Secretary and one-time Harvard University president turned to Jeffrey Epstein and said, I need small-scale philanthropy advice. My life will be better if I raise $1 million for Lisa. Lisa, I take it to be his wife. Uh, mostly it will go to make a PBS series and for teacher training ideas. <laughs> Again, this is in 2014. This guy already was convicted of sexual misconduct with a minor. Um, you know, like by then, like maybe maybe you just like lose this guy's contact information from your phone, right? No, I, I agree with you. I, even if you know, by some sheer, very large stretch of the imagination, <laughs> you assume that he might not be fully guilty. Um, it, it would behoove you to not converse, much less ask the guy for money or support. Oh, sure, right, for honesty, yeah. It makes no sense whatsoever. And, and for what, a poetry? Like, for anything, it's stupid. But yeah. poetry and anything linking to schools, like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot. It also shows that just how deep Epstein's relationships went. I, I think that sometimes we don't fully, or, or the general public doesn't fully understand that, beyond just, obviously, what we know about sex trafficking. The fact that he was a member of some of the highest echelon cliques 
politics in terms of politics, policy, and government across multiple countries. I, I think that we always have to remember that. Yeah, and uh, so so the the information about the LinkedIn founder is new to me at least. Maybe it was previously reporting. I, I don't know that. Woody Allen in the mix. That's uh, a little eyebrow raising. Um, Woody Allen being involved with anybody who had sex trafficking is not necessarily <laughs> as eyebrow raising as uh, you might yeah, think. You know, allegedly and so on. Properly caveating everything here. Um, so the the Jamie Dimon uh, the the banking news is interesting because it's it's possible that this um, legal action will bring to light more um, a better public understanding of the extent of Epstein's connections and goings on. Um, like you said, it's just amazing his level of access to to people like Larry Summers, who's a was a top government official, a top academic official, if there is such a thing, his access to the Clintons, um, Repu you know, Republicans as well. It was totally bipartisan. Uh, it, it's elites. It's an elite situation. All the elites, you know, they even even the elites who are who are railing against the elites in general, mm -hmm. they're still all hobnobbing together. Um, I, I'm just I'm amazed with, with the the ability that this guy Jeffrey Epstein could get on the phone with powerful people because he had all this money to throw around when they needed favors. They came to him. The subculture of ultra-rich people being able to expand their influence and their environment well beyond the means of any normal person, um, any advocate, any policy person, is um, it, it's otherworldly. And I think mm -hmm. that even though Jeffrey Epstein had all of these issues, and issues that were well known to everybody because they were, they were overly publicized, um, and once it came out, you know, after he was going through the legal proceedings and everything else, some things got brushed under the rug. It was when you have money, you can make that happen. Um, they weren't even worried about uh, proximity. Not mm -hmm. only proximity, they weren't worried about image at all. And there are certain individuals where, you know, it's a hot potato. Like, nobody's going to be friends with or go to bat for R. Kelly right now. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that there is something to be said about this well, guy he because can of the you, money he Maybe had. if he can help you publish your poetry. I don't know. If it, exactly. <laughs> if he can donate millions or get millions to you, maybe he would have had yeah. a, a much stronger semblance as well. It's problematic because it shows you that regardless of what party you happen to be a part of, regardless of where you happen to live, because he had a lot of connections in Europe and in Central and South America as well, this guy was able to infiltrate all levels of government, all levels of the private sector. When you have money like that, it doesn't matter what you have done or what you've been accused of. You still have people basically calling you. You, you don't disappear. And I think that gave him this—well, hmm. didn't give him a sense of power. He had power because of, quite frankly, when you have some of the major leaders of any country giving you a call or having you in their phone, at the end of the day, you are an essentially really power player. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak visited Epstein dozens of times and accepted flights on his private jet, visiting his mansions in Florida and New York. I, this is, this is, I'm reading off a list from the Wall Street Journal. Again, great reporting by the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, Woody Allen, Reid Hoffman, as we mentioned, Leon Black, the billionaire co-founder of private equity giant Apollo Global, scheduled more than 100 meetings with Epstein from 2013 to 2017. Uh, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, wealthy people hobnobbing yeah. with being friendly towards and having relationships with other wealthy people is not necessarily breaking news, but I think to the point in your opening, it is all the things he had been connected to that seemingly did not matter to individuals who were still connected to him. And because Bill I get Gates. it before he had been caught up. But yeah. after that, you would have assumed that these people would have just disappeared, disassociated, whatever, I don't know you anymore. They absolutely did not. Um, 
There are only so many people you can ask for millions of dollars from, though. Mm -hmm. I think we also have to remember that. And of that list, uh, Jamie Epstein, Epstein never made it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gates, as well, had a long history of associations with, uh, with Epstein. Um, it, it apparently spooked and unnerved Bill, uh, Bill Gates' wife, Melinda Gates. Um, she said that subsequent to the separation and divorce, that she was like, this guy is creepy. Why are you talking to him? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. But obviously, we, we, there, there's, so, there's a sense that there's so much information that we did not, we have not yet even scratched the surface of the full extent of this abhorrently disgusting criminal behavior and then his vast associations with all these people. And all of those networks who would rather die three or four times, heinous deaths, than yeah. to have their names brought up in any association yeah. with Jeffrey Epstein today. Yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Conservative commentator Steven Crowder is being accused of sexual harassment, according to the New York Post. Ten former employees say Crowder ran an abusive company where he often screamed at his employees, including his own father, exposed himself, sent out directives to arbitrarily fire people, and made underlings wash his laundry. Crowder downplayed the allegations in a recent video. Let's watch. Okay. All right. So and now, now there's this newspaper article out this morning where um, it says, quote, Crowder was known to expose his genitals to staffers. Well, hold on a second. Yes. Oh, yeah, well, just, yes. just wait. I mean. That did happen. I mean, what are you talking about? The Terminator 2 sketch? No, but the, the, at the time, you only had five employees, and they were all male. Well, yeah, I know. But is that, it was a Terminator yeah. 2 sketch because, remember, the nudies didn't fit? Oh, Is that that right. one, Sam? Yeah. Well, now there was are. Was it the E.T. ones uh, through the cornfields where we had to run naked through yeah, the cornfields? Yeah, we were naked in that one, yeah. We were naked in that one, too. That was yeah. a good one. That was at night, though. Was it gay Captain America? Because what happened is the a cold. The, the onesie didn't fit, so we just had to make it a nosy, and there was no. <laughs> um, well. This comes after video was leaked of Crowder being verbally abusive to his then-pregnant wife, now ex-wife. Crowder has described the video as misleadingly edited. Let's watch. You were not taking the car. No, because if you refuse to do wifely things, then I will go pick up the groceries. We need to just stop and baby for a little bit. Okay, I love you. I love you very much. I don't love you. That's the big problem. I've never received love from you. And the fact is, when I go, look, I need you to do A, B, C, and D, you just be disciplined about it, you go, no. But I love you more than life itself. Okay. Put on some gloves. No. But I love you more than life itself. That's not fair. That's not fair, and it's disingenuous. Hillary, you're right, right in the past. Become someone, as you did, day in and day out, worthy of. A wife worth? No, not as a wife. I didn't say as a wife. Hillary, Hillary, come on now. I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to engage anymore. I'm going to go. I'll get text me what you need. I'll get you what you need. I, I love you. I'm committed to you. Are you committed enough to do those things? I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to. Are you committed I'm enough to do those things? things? You're not committed to anything. So, and look, I don't really want to dwell or, like, you know, interrogate people's personal lives. Uh, this is news because, it, okay, so the long and short of it is Stephen Crowder had, had been offered this deal to join the Daily Wire, and he was very uh, upset about it. He's, he went on, he publicly said he felt insulted by it, um, and, and people were like, what, why is the Daily Wire 
you know, treating him like this. And then the Daily Wire people said, actually, we offered him $50 million. And we're not sure why he's so offended. And then uh, the Daily Wire people got really mad at Crowder. So Crowder, you know, recorded one of them surreptitiously. And so then this escalated to this very nasty fight on the right, where Candace Owens, a prominent figure with the Daily Wire, suggested that there was something going on in his personal life, but she wouldn't say what it is publicly in a video. She's saying, like, you know, I, I, I would like my audience to pray for Stephen. Um, and then he kind of said, so she's effectively like, blackmailing me. And so, so the, uh, the underlying thing that she was alluding to, I take it to be, was that he was going through this painful divorce, which, again, that is something that happens to tons and tons and tons of people. But it's, I, I think he perceived it as embarrassing because uh, he's a you know, very conservative Christian. And he's said a lot about, uh, I mean, he, he's said that he opposes the concept of no-fault divorce. Um, you know, and so on and so forth. So then he made a statement about the state of his marriage, and then uh, Yashar Ali, who's a independent journalist, uh, published this video that he got. I, I would gather that he got it from from the ex-wife. Um, who knows? And then there's a, then there were these additional accusations of you know a, a not totally healthy and cool <laughs> workplace going on. So that's that. You know, I hate to say it, but Candace was right. <laughs> Candace Owens was right in this situation. There was a lot more there to be peeled back from that onion. I do think that this was not, in my personal opinion, an extent of love as much as it was. Like, he's not heartbroken about his marriage being over as mm -hmm. much as he's heartbroken about some of the reasons why and the fact that this facade he built around Christianity, around, you know, divorce not happening to these, these types of couples and about holding your family together, um, that kind of blew up in his face. And it blew up in his face because of how he treated his, his now ex-wife. Mm -hmm. um, the derogatory statements, the fact that she has come out and talked about a lot of the uh, emotional abuse she suffered from him, some uh, up, up to and including not only the language, but also uh, personal threats. We don't know if there was actually any physical abuse, but definitely personal threats and him just being mm -hmm. bombastic. I, I think that those things were very real. And for someone who is pregnant at the time when a lot of this stuff like really erupted, um, it's even more detrimental. And he was someone who tried to play up his audience, as a lot of conservative uh, Christians do, uh, to this marriage perfection, to this mm -hmm. idea of we are this super Christian household and we are upholding the love and the family and all that. And then it shows, then it's revealed that he is really um, not treating his wife well, not treating his wife with respect, not treating his wife as you should treat any human being. He's being extremely derogatory. He's talking down to her. He's treating her in some way. Uh, slave-like, clean this, clean that. If you're not doing this, you're not doing wifely duties. And wifely duties I mean, can mean a ton okay. of other things. It was a lot well, going true. on there. Look, it's an ugly clip. I, you know, I do want to be like, couples fight. They have, you know, if you get, you can find any couple at like their worst moment, stick a camera in the. At well, them, his wife is arguing bad. this is a pattern, not just that well, video. Sure, there's but, more. You know, there could be, you know, a snap, a a what, however much footage that was, snapshot of of people at their worst is going to look ugly. Divorces are ugly. Breakups are ugly. I don't, you know, I don't. I think it'd be wrong to like judge his fitness as a husband and a most human being women based don't leave that. their husbands or push to leave their husbands while pregnant. Mm -hmm. That that is not something that is normal in our culture or any other. Mm -hmm. um, the level of abuse that she is claiming that she suffered. Uh, again, I say claiming not to use it in a derogatory term. She could be 100% factual here. We weren't there. We don't have evidence towards it. Um, with that being said that signals something. Um, in addition to that, it is also that 
This is someone who perpetuated in multiple cases this idea of extremely traditional marriage, and in his mind, traditional marriage is the woman does certain things. Um, a lot of those are homely duties, are duties to basically stand down, not be argumentative, not have your own voice, not express yourself. And that, to him, was how you should respond. Mm -hmm. And he, he alluded to that even on his own show. So none of this should be extremely surprising to people. This is how he viewed women. Um, it's upsetting because in the no-fault divorce process, which I personally stand for, agree with, think that it's extremely important, um, because otherwise it seems like one party is trying to hold you hostage. If you want to leave a marriage for any reason, particularly some of the ones that she's shouting out, but for any reason, you should be able to leave said marriage. I mean, it's just a, it's a contract. It should be dissolvable like any other contract. Exactly. And his argument there that, you know, this is uh, th this is something that should not exist, and there, there are a lot of people on the right who agree with this, it is interesting to me because as someone who is a Christian, um, more on the left side of things, but still a Christian, I believe in marriage. I believe that marriage should be sustainable. I believe in family. I believe in the the, the two family, the, the two person mm -hmm. parental unit. But when things go sideways, when you feel that you're not getting that you're getting abused or that you know you're not leveling up to, and this isn't healthy for your family or for you, you should be able to have a way out. Here's there's one other aspect of this I wanted to mention that I haven't seen anyone else touch on yet, and I'm actually surprised. So maybe it, maybe it has come up somewhere, and I've just missed it. But the ring camera. Caught that exchange? Turn off your ring cameras. I, well, you're going to be being spied on. Like your own security system is spying on you to like to be used against you at your at your at your lowest. Uh, that seems dangerous. Uh, his, his level of personal I don't want, security got trounced by yeah, I don't his want, own statement. Uh, I don't want. You know, maybe maybe you're going to. People can argue in this case. It's like. You know, it's it's good. It's in the public interest or the cause of justice that we all see it. But I, I I think it could be abused in a lot of bad ways, and we should not be. And you know, look if you it's if you want to be surveilled by your own security system, that's all good on you, I guess. But that was like his porch or something. It was it was it definitely was. I don't know, it, was it was an internal. It wasn't just like the front his... door, so that the robbers don't come. It was inward. It was, it was an enclosed own... thing. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of scary strange because scary. who's actually going to be busting? Are they having a picnic while they're stealing your stuff? I'm a little yeah, confused as to why that area Whatever safety benefit it has to me is muted by the fact that it's like watching you and that footage just exists and now like we're all seeing it. I, it is it is very damning. It is embarrassing. And yeah. he caught himself essentially because of the equipment that he installed. Yeah. Man. Man, oh man. Um, all right. We'll have more rising right after this. Tucker Carlson may be willing to walk away from some of the millions that Fox News is obligated to pay him if that would give him the flexibility to have a prominent voice in the 2024 election cycle, including potentially by hosting a debate. That's according to people familiar with his thinking and in a new report in The Washington Post talking about this. Tucker also apparently doesn't want to be tied down to a single medium like podcasts only, where some industry experts were predicting the conservative giant could potentially go next. So I found these details fascinating, and we don't really know how, how accurate they are because they're not 
totally sourced to anyone, but the thrust of the article is that perhaps, again, according to the Washington Post, Tucker wants to maybe um, uh, moderate a debate, and according to the Washington Post, has already talked to Donald Trump about doing this, and you'll recall that Trump is is not, if so Fox is supposed to be hosting a debate, Trump is not happy about it, he's not happy with the RNC, he's not happy with anyone, uh, but he has this very positive relationship with Tucker Carlson. Uh, that was clear when you know Donald Trump was reacting to the firing. He's like, what's going on? I don't get it. So that would be really interesting um, uh, if, uh, if something like that takes place. It's interesting. It's out of the box. It's something that historically we have not seen. But for Tucker, the world is his smorgasbord. Um, mm -hmm. He has an embedded fan base. And regardless of where you sit in terms of liking him, disliking him, or being in, in the middle, which I don't think anybody's in the middle on Tucker, um, that doesn't eradicate the fact that he has more of a more of a base than most people who are in syndicated television or cable television or radio or podcast. That just kind of is what it is, and I don't think that that changes because he's no longer associated with Fox News. Beyond that, I find it interesting that he still has such a tightly knit relationship with former President Trump, considering the release of text messages and other things that he said that we saw came out during the Dominion voting um, investigation, where he said some pretty negative things about Donald. Trump and where Donald Trump is typically bombastic when people say attack worthy things of him, he had absolutely nothing to say ah, you, about you, those. You never offhandedly said you hate someone passionately, even though you get along with them <laughs> great, and you didn't really mean it. I don't hate my friends, but um, <laughs> he was just—it was—it was a little raucous, and mm -hmm. I, I find it interesting that they can still have that type of relationship. But Tucker, I think Tucker's a businessman above all, and I agree with him. I don't think that he should limit himself to just sole podcasts. The man has the opportunity to have multiple digital platforms to, you know. Know, watch networks that aren't Fox mm -hmm. News basically clamor to get his attention or to get a contract with him in any form or fashion. He is also someone who has the ability to fundraise, create PACs, um, where essentially Republican candidates at multiple levels will come begging for his attention and his support because they need that level of a base that he provides. So he's not going to go away anytime too soon. I don't think that he's shuddered in any way mm -hmm. by no longer being on Fox. Actually, he can make a much bigger name for himself and a longer staying play with multiple demographics in terms of age groups now that he is outside of just solely doing cable. So apparently One American News has come knocking. Um, Newsmax according to the Washington Post, uh, not only offered Tucker something, but kind of hinted at maybe a total rebrand of the whole of the whole property to be more Tucker, uh, to, 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 to have him more front and center. Um, Glenn Beck at The Blaze said he would love to have Tucker join them. The Daily Wire people said they would love to have Tucker join them. Um, obviously, he could potentially do what uh, what people like Dave Rubin and Russell Brand and Glenn Greenwald have done, and Kim Iverson, our former co-host, gone to Rumble and started mm -hmm. uh, very successful shows with them. So really, it's, yeah, it's as you say, it's all about what he wants to do. He, he may want, I, I would believe, that he wants to, you know, have a say in, in the direction of the Republican Party. That's really Absolutely. what he was doing on his show. And they, they were ta we talked about this on, on our show yesterday, that Abby Grossberg, this producer who's, who's suing him, uh, or suing, the, uh, suing Fox, it's about the experience she had working for him, she was telling, she, I saw her on Anderson Cooper the other day, and, and she was talking about the influence that Tucker was trying to wield over the House speakership selection, that he wanted to have Kevin McCarthy on the show, and then have Matt Gates on, and kind of, uh, and, 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 and almost negotiate Kevin McCarthy's ascension 
on the understanding that he would he what Kevin McCarthy is going to commit to doing, um, and and then and CNN was you know framing that as like a very evil and pernicious and undemocratic thing, even though I'm like, no, he's what he he's got influence, so he's using yeah. it. I know that's the influence everyone that everyone that's in media and politics people would wants pray to, to have. have. The leader yeah. of the Republican Party has been and still remains former President Trump. Yes. The VP of the Republican Party is Tucker Carlson. That's I think true. that we have to be very real about where Tucker stands. And, I, and he is being very strategic and smart in understanding where his base is, where his influence is. And even though these offers are coming through from Newsmax, OAN, and various other places, I don't think that Tucker Carlson is going to leave the masthead of Tucker Carlson to essentially build up networks that are quite frankly, beneath where he is. It doesn't make sense. Um, he wants to wield power over elections. He wants to wield power, over, not just at the federal level, in, in states as well. And he understands that his voice carries in so many different ways. And I don't think he's going to take that for granted. Yeah, absolutely not. He, he has lots of opportunities to make money, obviously, but he's been well paid by Fox for a long time. Uh, you know, when you, if you have a lot of money, money isn't money is an important thing. But he, I think, he wants to have influence. He has influence. He had influence in his the slot he had at Fox, and uh, and and I I gather that he would want to keep that that uh, that level of influence on the direction of the Republican Party. And also, it's it should be pointed out, even though he's been most successful lately as a cable news host, he's a really talented writer. Um, even, I think, people who hate him, passionately hate him and disagree with him, have conceded in the past that he, he he's a really good um, writer in, like, long-form journalism. He co-founded uh, The Daily Caller, which is a online And brought up a lot of Gen Z people that, into, into politics right. and policy and it lifted up those voices. I also think that it, his trajectory is very different. So when we see other people leave networks, we saw, you know, mm -hmm. the fallout with Cuomo at CNN, and then he, he he went on to do other things. But he was not a mainstay for the Democratic Party. Like, no, no leader was mm -hmm. calling on him for policy change or thought that, like, any advocacy on his show was going to change things. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing that we saw with Eric Bowling, another person who, you know, unceremoniously left Fox News. Um, he's at Newsmax. He's not really reshaping anything for the, for, for the Republican Party. Republican leaders aren't waiting for his endorsement. That's not how that goes. Um, Tucker is in a very unique spot that most people who've been in cable news would hope to be in, because his influence isn't just in television. It is shaping policy and procedure. People want to have him standing beside them, because they know that that brings votes, that brings people, that brings power. It also brings a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Other hosts have not had that ability. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. The U.S. Navy invited active duty Yemen second class Joshua Kelly, who identifies as non-binary and who is also a drag queen, to be a digital ambassador as part of a recent drive to attract the most talented and diverse workforce and combat plunging recruitment. Kelly, whose stage name is Harpy Daniels, has shared their journey on TikTok and Instagram where they described how they began performing on board and became an advocate for people who were oppressed for years in the service. Hmm. What do you think? Are drag queens the way to bring more people into military recruitment? You know, our military recruitment is some of the worst, lowest levels this nation has ever seen. Mm -hmm. I think right now it's at less than 3%, um, especially amongst millennials, just because of not being able to pass the physical exam, the fitness test, in addition to just low interest. Um, I believe in recruiting by whatever means necessary that doesn't include a draft. 
Mm-hmm. And our U.S. military no has our U.S. military all, has all had board for no draft. They've had a long history of inequity towards various different types of minorities. I thought you were going to say they LGBT. have a long history of drag, which is also true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I don't see a problem with this. There are um, no women, and the, when they put on performances and play, you know, the, the, there's there's actually a lot of like a long history of drag performances in the military. Period. That, that, That's and, what and, like and South Pacific happened, is all and about. And it has happened for generations. There yeah. were. I, I would argue that the military has a longer level of of support in terms of drag shows than the history of America in general. Right. But I, I think that they are literally trying to throw everything and see what sticks in terms of recruitment. And it's not just for um, people who are uh, trans or people who are um, non, non-heterosexual. It is mm-hmm. a move to try to increase diversity. I know that they've also included um, DEI positions, at least at the federal level, that didn't exist before, trying mm-hmm. to be as well, I don't thoughtful that, and but... helpful as they can. Um, and, you know, they're in a tough spot. Our military does not have a lot of individuals who are actively deciding that that's what they want as their next career move mm-hmm. in a way that they did two, three, four generations ago plus. I mean, I guess Republicans will say the military is, you know, is a, is a right-leaning institution. The people in it are right-leaning and they're going to be put off by this. I, I mean, the conservatives have uh, have developed a very sudden interest and, and dislike of, you know, drag queens, drag events. And look, I understand that... Um, Many drag performances and events are not suitable for children, and I think the limited debate over some of those events that we've seen video footage of and, you know, why were children there is perfectly fine to object to. Um, plenty of drag is appropriate for adults and, again, has a long history in the military itself. So if they turn this into a whole thing, I, I think they're going to be, like, forgetting that that, or maybe they just don't know that that's the case. Yeah, I, I think that it's going to be largely supported by those who are in the military. Um, again, because it's not new to them. This isn't something that is extremely shocking because they've seen shows multiple times over and mm-hmm. at various intervals of service. Um, Largely, I do believe that there is going to be the, the culture war string hero. Now, um, drag and, yeah. and trans is attacking our military yeah. service men and women. Um, well, drag and trans are two different things as well. I Actually, and I think the right is maybe doing a bad job on differentiating between them. Look, there's a, there's a debate over, over uh, on the right at least, and, and actually there's a debate some people who would not describe themselves as conservative or Republican on any other issue have some issues with uh, the claims being put forward by activists on behalf of transgender issues that, you know, you can't change your—they will say you can't, you know, you can't—you're you're a man or a woman. You can't actually change that fundamental mm-hmm. um, alternative. Uh, obviously, consenting adults to do whatever they want is my perspective. There's then a debate over how young you can be to do some of these surgeries and things. But that is actually all different than just—I mean, the point of drag is that, like, you're not changing your under, underlying sex or gender. You're dressing up as the other sex or gender for for performance and comedy and entertainment. Like, a component of it is the ridiculousness of men in female clothing and, and women in male clothing, right? It's, it's, it's actually kind of, it, 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 it is not like undermining gender norms in the same, if, if you, you know, believe this from a right perspective, in the same way that trans stuff is. Like, they're actually very different, and they've been totally condensed into the same thing. And I just say live, let live, personally. Um, you well, know, me too, I'm, but... Pro LGBT, and at the end of the day, but maybe you're that's going not the right do... thing to say to our military. <laughs> and, and, I mean, we we as a, a nation pushed uh, people into the closet for a very long time who mm-hmm. served in our, our military, and I don't think that that did them you know no, that personal bad. justice either. But 
right now, the, the issue that the military has is recruitment. Mm -hmm. And that is something that they cannot seem to find their way out of. They have done several different types of recruitment campaigns, strategies, through everything at the wall but the kitchen sink. And thus far, nothing has been successful. Uh, we know that the, the actor from Creed 3, who's caught up in other you know issues right now, mm -hmm. was supposed to be a lead of a campaign launch for them as well. Mm -hmm. That ended up falling apart. Um, they want to get younger folks. They want to you know, bolster Kang, interest. the Kang guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. What's his name? <laughs> They're trying to do the I best that they can. Right and it's not, it's not helping them. Yeah. Um, why do you think, recru is recruitment down because people don't want to join the military because they don't agree with the military policies of the U.S. over the last 20 years or so, the disastrous nation building in the Middle East and that sort of thing? I absolutely think so. I think that part of it is what we saw um, with what was false flagging in terms of the pretense that got us into wars that we did not get out mm -hmm. of until two plus decades later. Um, in addition to that, there is a large and very vocal group that does not support military spending, that does not support the outgrowth of um, and the bloat that comes from the consulting class mm -hmm. that is very upset with um, not fully understanding or not fully being behind mm -hmm. some of the military interventions we've taken and some of the long-term and oftentimes negative effects of those interventions that to your point, failed nation building in certain places. And I'm not sure that there is a, there is a recruitment campaign mm -hmm. that is going to solve that issue. Right, and that's a, another criticism of this kind of thing. Instead of you know, rethinking what our military and what our military might's role should be in the world from it and, and like actually listen to people on both the left and the and now more often the right who have made criticisms of what we've been doing, it's like, a, no, we'll, we'll like slap wokeness on it. We'll make it. We'll make it diversity. We'll make it gender inclusive. We'll make it all of that stuff without without rethinking it in any fundamental way. And the secondary part is we are young enough to have people who served in Iraq and Afghanistan who have come back as veterans who don't think that they are getting the, their just desserts in terms of housing supports, in terms of mental health supports, in terms of being able to easily transition into the the workforce outside of the military. Um, the best and sometimes worse, uh, spokespeople for any work or career opportunity are people who've already served in that work and career opportunity. Mm -hmm. They are out here telling folks what their experience was, what their experience is now on the other side of it. And quite frankly, oftentimes it's not great. Hmm. All right, well, that does it for us uh, for today. Uh, Amisha, you'll be back here at the desk tomorrow, Absolutely. I understand, with Inez Stepman, and that will be very exciting. I will tune in. Everyone else should as well. I'll be back here next week. Rihanna Joy Gray will be back as well. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. It's been a fun week, and I'll see you later.